Welcome, everyone, to episode one of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel, and I'm so glad you're here. The inspiration for this podcast started several years back. Personal experiences I have had on the job and those of close friends and coworkers led me on a path to learn more about how to better support those in our career field. I retired in 2019 at the rank of detective from the Wichita Police Department in Kansas. I spent a majority of my career as a person's crimes detective, working gang, homicide, and sex crimes cases. I always knew I wanted to be a cop and feel grateful to have fulfilled my childhood dream. I currently serve as the health and wellness coordinator for the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office in Wichita, which is my current dream job. About six years ago, I became curious about the impact this career field can have on not just cops, but all first responders. After witnessing firsthand the pain, trauma, and difficulty of this work, long hours, getting called into work in the middle of the night, and the nature of the work itself takes its toll mentally, emotionally, and physically. Over the past several years, I have taken a deep dive into learning all I could about resilience, trauma, and healing. I've met some incredible people and felt the need to share their stories and the great work that they are doing to support first responders and their families. My intention with the podcast is to add value, provide support, share resources, and smash the stigma of reaching out for help by providing a platform for honest conversations with first responders, family members, retirees, and wellness experts. If you continue to tune into the podcast, you will hear the stories of those on the front lines, the challenges and difficulties they have faced, the wonderful programs, people, and resources available to support them. Today, you will hear an interview I did with my dear friend and colleague, Kim Colgrove. In 2014, Kim lost her husband, David, to suicide. She created Pause First Mindfulness for First Responders and the Pause First Academy to honor her husband's memory and to help other first responders cope with stress and trauma. Kim has been practicing meditation for more than 40 years and has taught mindfulness professionally since 2011. She is the creator of the Pause 15 Meditation Method and Learn to Pause Mindfulness Training. Kim's team of trainers, many of which are first responders, are dedicated to helping frontline workers build resilience through education and a trauma-sensitive approach to the evidence-based practice of meditation. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Kim. Thank you, Wendy. I'm really happy to be here. We are thrilled to have you. Uh, I will let you do most of your introduction, but I just want to let the audience know just a little bit about you. Kim started the Pause First Academy recently, and she has a really, really riveting and wonderful story that led her to where she is today. She has been a lifelong meditator. In fact, I believe she has meditated for over 40 years. And I'll let her kind of get into to when she started and, and what led her down that path to where she is today. So Kim, can you please just tell us a little bit about you, your background, and what led you to start the Pause First Academy? Sure. Well, my story begins 
1976, actually, when I was 10 years old, believe it or not, my parents had me trained in transcendental meditation, which is a meditation technique. Uh, transcendental meditation is not what I practice anymore, and it's not what I teach, but that was definitely uh, the foundation that helped me create the methodologies I used down the road to teach people about meditation. My parents were meditators, and so they had me formally trained. So I started meditating at the age of 10. Uh, I'm 54 now, so that's over 40 years of meditating, like you said. Uh, I've always used meditation myself, and in hmm, probably the early 2000s, I started to talk to other people about it and teach other people a little bit about it. Nothing serious, just kind of on the side. But in January of 2011, I quit my full-time job to teach meditation and mindfulness full-time. At first, I was teaching individuals and small classes on my own, and then I started to get corporate jobs. So some of my corporate clients are Garmin International, United Way, Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, National Court Reporters Association, and uh, a lot of other small companies around the greater Kansas City area where I live. So teaching meditation and mindfulness in corporate settings is what I was doing until 2014. And in September of 2014, my husband David retired from a 30-year law enforcement career. Uh, David was a police officer for eight years and a federal agent for 22 years. And in September of 2014, he retired and less than three months later, on the Saturday after Thanksgiving, David drove to the back of our neighborhood and shot and killed himself in his truck. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can imagine, it, it took me uh, a, a good long while to kind of get my legs under me enough that I could even allow myself to think about what had just happened to my life and what had happened to my husband. He seemed ready to retire. Uh, He had been in law enforcement for 30 years, but he had a master's degree in business management. And he spent two years creating a business with a business partner in St. Louis. They were rolling out the new business in the fall. Uh, My business was rolling, and we had lots of plans for the future. He seemed ready to retire. After a few months, I started to allow myself to think about that day and think about that experience, and I really needed to know what had happened to my husband and why he had unraveled in the way that he did. I started to think about that incident that happened in the back of my neighborhood, something you never, ever think will happen to you. And I started to think about the people involved in that call, and that's where things really shifted for me. I thought about the police officer that knocked on my door. I was cooking dinner, like I had cooked dinner thousands of times before. He had to give me that news on my front porch I thought about the detective that had to sit in my living room and give me all the pertinent information in that very business-like manner because that's his job while I literally dissolved in front of him, in front of his eyes. I knew there would have been a dispatcher. 
Uh, They told me that it was an off-duty firefighter that heard the gunshot and found my husband in his truck and called 911. And I thought about everybody that would have been dispatched to and had to work that scene. And I was gobsmacked because I realized at a different level than I had ever realized before what my husband has had endured in his law enforcement career because I knew he had been to scenes like that. I knew he had knocked on people's doors to give them that news. He was a crime scene investigator. And as I put all of this together in my head, I had this drive to understand how that stress and trauma had impacted him and if and how that might have led to the decision he made to end his own life. So I started to research that and I learned how stress and trauma impacts first responders. I learned about secondary trauma being impacted by or affected by the trauma of others and how much that affects first responders. And I learned that we were losing more police officers and firefighters to suicide year over year than in line of duty deaths. And I just felt compelled to do something. I just really wanted to do something. But I'm not a therapist or a clinician. I don't have any training um, in that arena. There's one topic that I know really well, and that's meditation. And so I thought, well, this is something I can offer. So I'm going to teach cops how to meditate. And every other human being on the planet laughed at me and said, you will never get cops to meditate. And I said, hold my beer. And I started to kind of try to figure (laughs) out how I could bring this helpful, useful tool to law enforcement and other first responders. So that's, that's where it all started. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, I've known you for several years and I've heard you tell that story multiple times, but every time you tell it, it just, it really, really just gets me because I don't know that, that unless you experience something like this with a loved one, which I hope no one ever has to do that hasn't already experienced it. It's unimaginable. And so I just, I just want to thank you for, for sharing that because I know that that can't be easy for you to do. Every time I tell the story, and as you can imagine, I've told it now hundreds of times. When I get to the part where I share that David took his own life in his truck in our neighborhood, every time Uh, My heart pounds in my chest and I feel temporarily kind of off balance. I I just, it's, it's still an emotional gut punch to say that because it is something you never think will happen to you and it is unimaginable. You're right. Well, again, thank you for, for being brave enough to do that. And then just turning this tragedy into something where you want to make a difference and help others who are struggling. So can you just tell us a little bit more about that transition once, once you were able to, like you said, kind of get your feet under you and you started thinking about all of those first responders who responded to the scene, 
How did you land where you are today? How, how did, what was that thought process? Hmm. Well, I started to do research and then things started to fall into my lap and in, in my computer and onto my desk. And that kind of happens in life when you get focused on a topic, it'll just keep showing up. So um, the more I learned, the more research I did, the more articles people would send me about trauma and stress, you know, amongst first responders, uh, the more driven I felt to do something. So I started to talk for my first conversation, I can tell you, was with a a local police officer. And uh, I had a meditation salon, a a storefront at the time. And he came there to to try it out. We ended up talking. And that, that really was where it started. His name's Jason. And he connected me with a couple of uh, police sergeants for me to, uh, police captains for me to talk to. And then he gave me the number of a local police commander who was uh, teaching a block of training for first responders. And it was a, a training on building resilience. So the commander was Darren Ivey, who is now one of our Pause First Academy trainers. So I just called Darren out of the blue and I told him what I wanted to do. He didn't know me from anybody. And he said, well, I'm teaching this four hour block of training. We teach a little bit of mindfulness and some breathing exercises in this class. And it's very popular. It's one thing people ask for more of, and we've been wanting to integrate more, but sort of haven't known how to. So he said, why don't you put together a half day training and then you can come with me a time or two and we'll throw it out there and see if anybody attends. So I put together a training and people started to sign up for the class. And that was 2017. And I've been filling that class since 2017. I've traveled now around the country with that half day training and attended conferences and, and conventions. And, uh, and that's what led me to kind of expand my mission and bring on some other trainers and it just keeps growing. So once you got out there and started presenting your four-hour block of training to first responders in the Kansas City area, and like you said, in other parts of the country as well, and noticing what their response was and how open they were to this sort of thing, is that what led you to want to write your book, or is that something that you had always thought of? Well, I, it may have started, I, I don't remember like a, a, a light bulb moment where I said, I'm going to write a book, but it very well may have started after I wrote a very personal article that was published in Police One magazine and uh, in Public Safety. So I wrote an article about my husband's suicide. And in this article, I told my story in a deeper way than I ever had. I shared things in that article that my closest girlfriends didn't know. And it was a very emotional experience for me. But what I realized in the writing of the article, it became a different article as I got into it than I initially intended. But as I was writing, I realized Somebody needs to be honest about this experience. Somebody needs to be very honest 
about the experience of first responders and how that impacts their marriages and their families and their mental and emotional health and their physical health and their life. If, if people don't start being honest about this, because I realized how many people suffer in silence, and that's what my husband did. He was so ashamed that he sometimes struggled with anxiety and depression. He did not want anyone to find out. He was terrified that his employer would find out that he ever had bouts of, of feeling anxious or depressed. He had a top uh, security clearance in the country, and he knew that if they suspected you know, any mental illness, that he could lose his security clearance and he couldn't do his job. And I've learned over the years that that runs deep and that's very common of pe- people not wanting their supervisors or their bosses or their employers to find out that they're struggling in any way, which is just terrible when you think about <laughs> how directly related the job is to the mental and emotional distress. So anyway, I was honest about how stress and trauma impacted my husband, how that impacted our marriage. I sort of shone a light on some of the darker corners of my life and it was terrifying. And I cried a lot writing it. And after I sent it to the editor, I immediately panicked and I almost emailed her to say, you don't have my permission to print it. And I realized sitting there, I can tell you I was on this couch in my bedroom and crying. And I thought, what is this? I felt ashamed. I felt so deeply sad in my bones. I felt like I was betraying my husband by telling this story because he was a very private individual. And I realized what I was feeling was vulnerability. I felt exposed I was afraid of being judged, but I didn't write that email to the editor. I allowed it to be printed. Not everyone thought it was great. I heard from a lot of people across the country who did think it was great, but some people in my personal life were not so happy with it and thought that I had sort of exploited my husband or, um, you know, sort of betrayed him by telling some of his stories. But for crying out loud, if we don't start being honest about this, it's, this, this is very tough work and this negatively impacts people and it ruins health and it ruins lives. And so some of us have got to start being brave and dip into that vulnerability and allow people the opportunity to say, ah, someone else experiences this. Oh, someone else knows what I've been going through. Other spouses are struggling with their loved one who's not doing well mentally or emotionally. Other kids and families are impacted. And that I think is the most important piece. And that is probably what really pushed me to want to write a book and get this story out there more widely. And it's also why I decided when I wrote my book to interview the nine first responders and allow them to tell their stories 
what they had been through, kind of how it impacted them, and to share how they found a healing path and how they stay on the healing path. Sure, yes. I, and and actually, I, I'm really glad that you brought up your article because uh, I completely forgot to ask you about that. And we will attach a link in the show notes for this podcast with your article and, of course, the information about your book. So a couple things. So you do address vulnerability and shame in the book uh, quite a bit. And you yourself obviously have demonstrated that uh, a thousand times over by by telling your story. And so in doing that, obviously, that wasn't very easy for you, as you just as you just explained. But can you tell us a little bit about uh, maybe an example or maybe just one or two stories or, or situations about that ripple effect in doing that? How has that come back? Uh, how do you know that you're making an impact or, or helping someone in sharing your story? I think the most rewarding thing about doing this work and exposing uh, the, the truth about my life and my experience is the people that reach out to me privately and thank me and want to tell me their story because I feel like a safe person to them. And that feels like the highest honor to me. I was involved in uh, a, a retreat and taught a mindfulness class, which I do regularly. And a couple of weeks later, after this five-day retreat, all first responders, a couple of weeks later, I got a private message from somebody who basically said, uh, going to that retreat was my last ditch effort. I had a suicide plan and I had decided that if I didn't experience any improvement from this retreat, that I was going to carry out that suicide plan. And they shared with me, I've not told anyone this story. In fact, my spouse doesn't know this yet. Wow. But I had a suicide plan and they really gave me a, a ridiculous amount of credit. What really had happened was the, the beginning of their healing process in this five-day retreat. But it was the mindfulness and meditation, I think, that helped them kind of cracked their shell. But those kind of stories from people, uh, man, I mean, that, that is, it, 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 lets, it, makes, it lets me know that I'm doing the right thing, that I'm supposed to be doing this work, and it's very rewarding, and it fuels me to continue. That, that's amazing. Uh, and, and yeah, exactly. I mean, when you're able to impact one person like that, I'm sure that's just worth more than than you can even you can even imagine. So just switching gears a little bit here, when you talk about this individual in particular who said that that your mindfulness and meditation uh, portion of this retreat made a big impact on them and how they had a plan. One thing I just really want to quickly say, you mentioned this earlier, how the suicide, the numbers of first responders, in particular law enforcement, firefighters, corrections, that take their own lives annually has exceeded line of duty deaths. And when you think about that for a moment, it, it's, it really just, it's, it's just a very, very outstanding statistic. 
And so one thing I don't think many people realize is that it's not even just those numbers that many first responders uh, are thinking about suicide. Maybe they're coming up with a plan like you just mentioned, and we, we can't even capture the numbers of those who think about it or who have anxiety or suffer from compassion fatigue, depression, things like that. So that's, that's the kind of thing underneath the surface that I think a lot of people miss. And so the work that you're doing, it just makes it even more impactful knowing that and how that person who you would never know is suffering was able to heal or start their healing path. So just, just amazing. It is unbelievable how many people consider suicide. It's I've, I've learned this in doing this work and it was a local police sergeant that actually uh, attended one of my early classes. There was about 30 people in there. And, uh, afterwards we talked and he said to me, I can feel you holding back when you tell your story. And I think it's going to be really important for you to tell your story and use the words you're afraid to use and be graphic and tell people how this has impacted your life. He said, there were about 30 people in my class. And he said, here's what I'm going to tell you. I know. He said, at least 10 people in that class have thought about, are thinking about, or will consider suicide at some point in their career. And he said, it may be more than that. So you never know who you're going to reach. And in the beginning, I was very careful about my wording. I was very careful. I, I was very nervous about triggering, triggering someone's trauma. Uh, in that probably that, that conversation was probably one of the, uh, it was the beginning of me opening up and, and telling the story in a more honest way, because yes, the suicide rate is unbelievable. And those who don't choose suicide or, or consider suicide are just suffering in silence with so many other mental and emotional issues and nobody knows. Right. And that's why it's so important to have these conversations um, so that people know it is okay to talk about it. And I know that you get into that quite a bit in your book about the stigma. Uh, and, and another thing, just switching gears a little bit, because I don't want to forget to ask you this question. You talked about just that story is still sticking with me about that person that you that you reached at the retreat. And why do you think meditation works? And I and this really isn't an opinion question only because you do talk about the scientific research in the book about why meditation, why mindfulness is so helpful when it comes to healing people who are on their path to healing from trauma. Could you just talk about that just a little bit? I really do believe that that meditation and mindfulness or mindful practices are the foundation of all wellness, all healing. And I know that sounds like a pretty tall claim, but there are so many facets and components of meditation and mindfulness that help an individual open to new ideas and new concepts to become more familiar with the self. Because a lot of times people are not even honest with themselves about what's going on in their head or their heart. And they're just barely always outrunning fear and anxiety and depression and 
they spend their whole life running. So the encouragement of meditation and mindfulness is to learn to sit and in stillness and be quiet to sort of allow the brain and the body to settle. So the brain activity settles and the body chemistry settles, not maybe the first time, but with some practice and some discipline and some education and some experience. Because until you can sit with the self and be still and be quiet, you will not probably really allow yourself to experience and be honest with yourself about what's going on internally, what you've been carrying, how you're feeling, what's going on mentally, emotionally. And until you can face that and become familiar with what's going on in your inner world, you're not going to make the external choices and decisions that can help you get better. So I do not believe meditation and mindfulness are the end-all be-all. It's not a panacea. It's not a quick fix. It's not, it is, they are practices that can help you open and accept one that you need to get on a healing path, then accept the steps in front of you on a healing path and then help you stay on that healing path. I feel that my real job here, or maybe my strength, is in bridging this gap between meditation and mindfulness, the practices, and the people that view meditation as hippy-dippy BS, new-agey nonsense. I think that I'm pretty good at bridging that gap and getting people to understand that all of the benefits that research, that science is telling us are available in terms of uh, brain function improvement and body chemistry balancing, those benefits occur naturally when you practice meditation. But in order for that to occur, the benefits come in the stillness, in the sitting, in the stillness. And uh, so I think that maybe that kind of is my real job here is, is bridging that gap for people and helping people understand that you can use meditation and mindfulness as very practical, straightforward, real, powerful, personal tools to help you open up to and get on a healing path. Yeah. And you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, um, you know, especially cops, and I, I speak about cops, because that's my background, but really all first responders uh, were a little bit skeptical. And you, you know, you said this woo woo, hippie, hippie dippy stuff. Uh, it is important in the way that you explain the benefits of this practice to this particular group of people. Because of that, as a group, let's face it, we are, um, we we're we're certain personalities and we need to know why something is going to help us or why you're teaching us something um, for us to even give it a try. And I think you do a really, really good job of um, speaking in practical language and terms when you're explaining all of this. And obviously I've been in your class and can attest 
to some of the people and some of the feedback um, that I've heard of in how you teach it, because you really do make it very simple. Because when I first started to meditate, I'll be honest with you, I, I read about it for about six months before I tried it. It was very overwhelming. There's just so much information about meditation and mindfulness. And, and I was actually going to ask you this anyway, to, to kind of tell us the difference between those two things. But, but I think a lot of times people just don't know where to start. And I do think you do a really good job of, of just starting us out, baby steps, introducing as the class goes along, having us sit for a little bit longer. And, and I will get into to what you do in the class a little bit later. But if you could just tell everybody what the definition or the differences between meditation and mindfulness. I think there are a lot of different sort of approaches and opinions about this. I'll tell you the way that I view it and the way that I teach it. I believe meditation is the daily practice or exercise that cultivates mindfulness. And mindfulness is a state of being, a way of living more aware of each moment, more present in each moment, and more present in your life. So less on automatic pilot, less survival mode, more presence in your life. So I do like to say to people, meditation is to mindfulness as exercise is to fitness. So if you want better physical fitness, you know you have to exercise and you know you have to exercise regularly. And that will cultivate better physical fitness. And that's sort of how I view meditation and mindfulness. Meditation is the daily exercise or regular exercise that cultivates more mindfulness in your life. So that mindfulness begins to sort of weave itself into the tapestry of your days and of your life. And there's this exponential benefit that that comes from committing to these practices. Yeah. And that's actually one of my favorite quotes that you have in the book. And I, I, I say it all the time and I think it warrants mentioning again, that meditation is to mindfulness as exercise is to physical fitness. And I've also heard you talk about meditation, like little mental pushups, instead of thinking about pushups, physical pushups to build your muscles, you're, you're building your mindfulness muscle when you're, you're doing those mental pushups. I think the issue with first responders comes in with the stillness and the sitting and the kind of doing nothing that is actually meditation <laughs> because first responders tend to be action oriented people. And yes. so to take an action oriented person and say, if you can sit still and just breathe and just experience the moment and notice what's happening, you know, in, in, in your body and notice the breath. If you can just sit and do this for a few minutes, there are some nice benefits that will uh, occur for you. It's so counterintuitive to almost everybody. And so there is a heavy lifting piece in the beginning of tr kind of training your brain and body to sit and stay like you would a puppy, you know, <laughs> I think, mm -hmm. I think yeah. that's a hurdle for most first responders. So what's your advice to somebody who will tell you, I, I can't meditate, I can't sit still, it's, it's something that I just can't overcome. What do, you, what do you say to somebody who, who says that to you? 
Well, I hear this all the time. And actually, not too long ago, I was on Facebook and somebody that I'm connected with on Facebook that I'm only connected with in social media, we haven't met in person, but was talking about trying to meditate and reading about and hearing people, you know, rave about meditation and trying it and saying they felt tried, I don't know, tried it for a week or two weeks or something like that and, and reporting that they really felt lousy and felt like it was causing anxiety and this and that. And, um, I read that and I really thought about it and I thought I'd love to have a one-on-one conversation with this person. But, um, I think it is about finding some kind of a, a practice or a technique that works for you. There are, you know, as you know, in in pause first, pause 15 meditation, we, we teach four kind of basic different techniques because we're all different. You know, we all have different brains. We're all different learners. Uh, so to find a technique that sort of works for you, even if it's difficult in the beginning, and then to start small with baby steps, I always encourage that people you know, you may not be able to jump right into a 15 minute or a 20 minute meditation. So I would work with, you know, someone one-on-one and say, you know, at what point when you sit and close your eyes and breathe, at what point do you feel uncomfortable? And if they say two minutes in, (laughs) two minutes in, I'm ready to get up. And I would say, okay, well, why don't you start with a two minute meditation, just sitting, kind of training your body that each day you're going to sit and do your best to allow your muscles to relax and just sort of breathe a little bit deeper than you normally breathe and don't overthink it and don't expect too much. And uh, so this would be my encouragement with somebody because meditation can be very peaceful and very enjoyable, but it also can drum up hidden emotions, things you've been hiding or, or stuffing. Uh, it can the stillness and the, and the silence of meditation can, uh, cause you to notice physical pain that you maybe have been mentally overriding. You know, there's a lot that can happen and it's not an overnight fixer. It's a, an exercise, it's a practice. And so I would say, you know, to that person or to anyone else who struggles with it, it, it's very common for it to be difficult in the beginning. It's very common that after a life of going hard and running fast and getting after it, after a lifetime of that, sitting still and just being might not be easy. But there's some really great science, really great research to support meditation and mindfulness as viable stress reduction tools and more. So I would really encourage people, find a way, find a teacher, find a process, a technique, start small baby steps and stick with it. And whatever comes up in that meditation that later makes you feel lousy, whatever's coming up, what, what, wherever you're feeling lousy, these are the things you need to look at. If, if you get up from meditation and you realize your shoulders and your neck are sore and hurting, that's an area of your body that needs attention. If your anxiety is increasing, that's something that needs attention from you. The gift of meditation, even if it makes you feel lousy in the beginning, can be you becoming aware of what attention your system needs from you, mentally, emotionally, physically. 
Because if you think that you're going to work a profession for 30 or 35 years that demands this much of you, and you're going to run hard and go fast, and not address your own mental and emotional and physical and relational and social and spiritual health and well-being, and then you're going to retire healthfully and happily, I got news for you. All of this that needs attention, it is all going to surface eventually. Yes, it will. And uh, I, I really, and I know you and I have talked about this before, that sometimes people can meditate and it can be very triggering and it can bring up a lot of things that they didn't know were there or that they just decompartmentalized over the years and just let it sit. And so... One thing I think warrants mentioning here is that sometimes when people try to meditate, you may decide or determine that there's some other resources that you need to implement into your healing journey. And that could be seeking out a therapist or seeking out peer support, talking to somebody um, because of what is coming up when you do meditate. So one of my greatest hopes with this work is that at the core of this work, people who otherwise would not will sit take a few breaths, the stuff begins to surface and they will, for the first time in their lives, maybe talk to a friend, reach out to somebody, attend a peer support group, make a counseling appointment, find a good therapist for the first time in their life. They'll realize I really do need to get some support for this. And I would also like to say in parentheses, I would never, ever ask somebody to sit through a meditation that is causing them to have a panic attack or intense anxiety to the point where they can't get a hold of their breath. I would never say, well, just sit through that. I would say, you, you need some attention. Your system needs some attention. Because as human beings, if we do not possess the ability to sit still and take a few breaths and be with ourselves, just to be, if we cannot do that, we have got to examine what is preventing us from doing that. Exactly. Yes. One thing I, I wanted to make sure to ask is you mentioned earlier that in your method that you developed, the pause 15 method, you talked about four different types of meditations and, and you don't need to get too in the weeds with this because I, I do want people to, to buy the book and to read the book, but could you just briefly tell us what those four different meditation styles are? Sure. Well, I chose pause 15 meditation because when I first set out to teach people about meditation and teach them how to meditate, I knew it needed to be kind of structured and easy to learn and kind of easy to practice. So everything I read said, you know, in as little as 15 minutes a day, you can sort of reap all the benefits that are available. So I created this process where for the first five minutes, uh, we breathe and we sort of allow our muscles to relax. So we spend the first five minutes doing a body scan to sort of let our muscles release tension and kind of get relaxed. And then we spend the next 10 minutes in meditation. And then that counts for a full 15 minute meditation experience. And the four different techniques that I teach, two are 
a little more structured and two are a little less structured. And I just ask people to kind of learn what each one of those are and experiment with them a little bit because we're all so different. So one person might need something very structured where they count and breathe the entire time they're meditating. And the other person might not need that structure to kind of, you know, stay anchored into the meditation. So that's why I, you know, kind of adopted that four different technique approach. And then I always, I tell everyone, there's a lot of flexibility built into even this structure, tons of flexibility. You can kind of add your own things in. It doesn't, you can sit in silence or you can have white noise in the background or maybe a little soft music. Find what works for you. If you can't do 15 minutes, start with one minute or three minutes in the beginning. Build that flexibility into it. Don't make this such a difficult and challenging endeavor. Simplified in the beginning, those baby steps we talked about earlier. Uh, but I think having those four different techniques and experimenting with different levels of structure, I think that helps people design a meditation technique or practice that will sustain for them. Yes. And I think it's really, really important to give people choices. And especially in the first responder culture, as a lot of us know, uh, we want to do things right. We want to make sure we're doing it the right way. And really, you it's right if it works for you is kind of what is what the message is there. There's no right or wrong way to meditate. It's just very simply taking time out to be still in whatever way works best for you. And I, I love that message that comes out of your class. Great. Good. I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that because you have this background, the same background of the, the people that I'm trying to reach. Yeah. And, and it's not easy. I mean, what, what even for me personally works one day may not work the next, you know, I've been meditating for a few years and, um, I really usually sometimes gravitate towards breathing and, um, inhaling and exhaling longer than my inhale, or maybe doing a box breathing before I start my meditation. But then sometimes that just doesn't work for me. So even for somebody who has a regular meditation practice, I think it's great that you give people or you expose them to so many different types or styles because they may do something for a week or two weeks or a month and decide, you know what, this isn't working right now. And oh, I remember that Kim taught me that body scan or that visualization meditation. So I just wanted to point that out because I think that's very important. So in writing the book, you interviewed nine first responders and had them tell their story. Can you just explain to us why you decided to include other people in your book besides you and your story and, and what kind of feedback you've gotten from that? Well, it started with me thinking, what do I need to do here to get first responders to pick up this book? Because a book about meditation and mindfulness is right out of the gate. It's probably not going to appeal to this particular demographic. So as I was getting into teaching the classes in 2017, and I had talked to and met so many great people as a result of teaching those classes, I thought, if some of these people would tell their story, if I could get some of these people to be kind of honest and vulnerable and open then this is really going to be a book that I can get people to pick up because I believe we all really want to be seen and validated. And 
if you see yourself in someone else's story, I think that helps you open and maybe you don't feel as broken or as damaged as, as you did before when you realize other people have your same struggles. Other people feel the way you feel. So I started asking some of these people if they would be interested in being interviewed and uh, the ones that I selected were so gracious. And as I sat with them and asked my questions and interviewed them, I thought, ah, this is so important. And that is something, that's what I, I hear from people a lot that say, I was... Uh, I was really connected with the first responders. I connected a lot with the first responders you interviewed. I've had people reach out and say, oh, I, had, I have had almost an identical experience as such and such or so and so in your book. And I really think, not to go off on a tangent, but I think this is what needs to happen in the world. We need to connect more. We need to share our stories. We need to be more honest and more vulnerable and I think this is what's going to really help people more than anything. I couldn't agree more. You know, one of the things, a couple things I was thinking when you were, when you were speaking and answering that question was first, just the power of telling your story, because as you said, somebody can say something to you and it may not resonate or it may not, you may not be able to relate to that person, but someone else who you have a little bit more in common with, maybe you have a similarity with um, the age of your children or the type of first responder work or the gender or whatever the case may be, and that person, and you share a commonality, and then that person speaks out and says, this is what happened to me, I suffered through this, and this is how I've healed, I think that can, that can really make a difference. As human beings, it's just natural for us to relate more to people who we're a little bit more similar to. I agree wholeheartedly. And, um, you know, this, these, these nine first responders and the storytelling that, that we're talking about and the sharing, this is different than telling war stories because in first responder communities that people will share their war stories and sometimes even get into like want to out war story, the other person. So so, and really only with each other. I mean, this is not, you know, you don't sit at a soccer game and, you know, tell the other parents, but, but you know what I mean? I mean, people will, will kind of share their war stories, something they've experienced. And, but what I'm talking about here and what you're talking about and what, what we do in the book is it's not just about these people telling about some really bad experience they had in the military. They're talking about how the experiences made them feel and how the experiences impacted them mentally and emotionally and stayed with them. So it's like going deeper. It's like going beneath, behind and underneath the war stories. And that's what we need to get to. That's where we'll break through with people. The, the feeling, the emotions, the impact, the 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 mental impact and and people being vulnerable and honest about that i think that that's how we're going to really uh, get people to open up to healing 
Yeah. And you're, and you are right. I mean, cops are notorious for wanting to outdo each other and, and tell, tell stories about, uh, one up one another for, for lack of a better way of saying that. And then another thing too, about these stories is that what I like when I read the book is that, uh, and I obviously know some of the people in the book and, and people will find out if they buy it, that I am one of the people that you interviewed in the book, but it talks not just about, we always hear about post-traumatic stress, PTSD, but what I like is that people shared their path to healing, what we call post-traumatic growth. So things that people experienced, what they went through and how they found what worked for them. And for many of them in the book, obviously, uh, they talk about meditation and mindfulness and how they're better for it. And you, I, I know you also address resiliency in the book and, and I don't want to give out too much more information. Cause like I said, I want people to, to get your book, but I think that that's worth mentioning. And then another really fascinating thing that I got from your book is that in going back to the conversation about suicide is that you talk about nine people that were interviewed and can you talk about what they each said about suicide or suicidal ideations? Cause I think that's really impactful in the, the context of this conversation. Yes. Well, and I, I don't remember the exact number. I don't remember the exact percentage, but I know I broke it down to, uh, of the people who spoke to me, a high percentage of them have thought about, have considered suicide as an option. And, you know, if you think about nine people, if I think about nine people in my world, because everyone I've interviewed for the book, I would now consider a friend and that more of them than not have at some point considered suicide. I just want everyone to pause for a second and take that in and think about that. And people who are, do work in law enforcement or are first responders may or may not even realize how prevalent that is. But I can tell you for sure the general public does not. Civilians do not realize how prevalent that is. Exactly. And, you know, I know that overall in our population, suicide is an increasing problem, but it's even more so in the first responder culture. I believe it's, according to the CDC, about one and a half times more than that of the, the general population. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. Uh, and going back to the book, I I should have had this in front of me, but I think if I'm remembering correctly, you said it was close to 70%. So I think it may have been six out of the nine that you interviewed. I think that's right. Yeah, having, that sounds about right. Having, yeah, having suicidal ideations. So, and then just a couple things now, uh, how can people, if somebody after hearing you, they're like, okay, I really need to take one of Kim's classes. I need to learn how to meditate. Uh, where can people find you? How can they, they get a hold of you? I know you have a lot of different platforms and way people can, can get this information delivered to them. Well, we are recording this uh, during the pandemic, so I'm not doing any live classes or courses um, for now. But I think first connecting with the website, which is pausefirst.com, and uh, checking out Pause First Academy. Because right now, training has been cut way back. Some organizations and agencies are doing no training right now. Uh, 
And Pause First Academy is a way that people can begin to connect with some of this uh, wellness and some of this healing. And as you know, because you're a part of this, uh, we are a group of mostly first responders and veterans that make up the training staff. I'm obviously not a first responder or a veteran, but uh, married to one. And we're taking just a little bit different approach than maybe the typical wellness or healing kind of outlet or school or uh, our approach is kind of like frontline worker, for frontline workers by frontline workers kind of a thing. Uh, so anyone who's listening, who is struggling, who kind of connected with anything we said, uh, I also want to reach out to spouses. You know, they're there are spouses who are very concerned for their loved one. Sometimes they can see what's going on and the individual themselves does not know how bad things are, but the spouse can see it and is living it. So this is also a good resource for spouses. Uh, so just to go to the website, check out Pause First Academy because we have courses available. It's, we've made it very affordable and it, it's a starting point. Just starting to take a couple of classes to think more about your mental and emotional and your physical health to open up to kind of more holistic wellness. That's what we would consider meditation and yoga and mindfulness to be kind of more holistic. Uh, take a step, take one step onto a healing path, go, you know, go buy some kind of a book, but if people want to connect with me and with us and with our project, pausefirst.com would be the place to go to check it out. Excellent. Uh, what about on YouTube or is there a Facebook page or anything else if people want to just check it out on one of those platforms? Yeah, we are Pause First Academy on Facebook. And if you go to the website and go to free resources, we do have some nice free resources available, some very brief, very easy breathing exercises and a guided meditation. And that's where you can link to the YouTube page. And we do have some videos and exercises available on the YouTube page. And that is all free. And I would encourage people to take advantage of all the free resources. Kick the tires. Try out a couple of things. Uh, when you're on the website, you can uh, actually preview, click over to the academy, go onto the academy page, and you can preview, preview some of these courses. But by all means, check out the free resources, go to the free resource page, and that'll link you to all of the, all of the other resources, all of the, the YouTube and Facebook. Excellent. And I'm really glad that you made it a point to talk about spouses of first responders and family members, because, of course, they're going to be the very first ones who are going to notice if something is is off is wrong. And it's really important to make sure that that we include family. And, and I'm, I'm so glad you said that, because not only am I a first responder, but I am also the spouse of, of a first responder who's now retired. And Oftentimes, what happens at work, people may not know, but but it's really hard to hide it when you go home. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, we've got to start offering support and resources for the spouses and the families. And as we've talked about, in 2021, we're going to start adding some of that to our academy because we know the importance you know, of supporting the family as well. Definitely. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us, Kim, especially you're our first guest and, 
And we couldn't have asked for a better person to kick off, just really capturing the essence of what this entire platform is about. Uh, I do just want to ask you one last question before we go. Um, this is kind of something that isn't specifically related to the conversation we have, but just more of an overall question. What have you witnessed just during your lifetime or more recently that has strengthened your faith in humanity? I would say I've noticed it over many years and it has really uh, picked up in recent years. And that is the willingness of individuals to be honest and vulnerable and share their stories. And I think that is really what is going to help us heal like really as a species because what we come from is, you know, a lot of shame and secrecy around what really happens in, in one's life and what one really experiences mentally and emotionally and, you know, in, in relationships. But that secrecy and that hiding and that building a house of cards where everything looks pretty and fine, but, but inside the house is on fire. So I, I think it's really that. I think it's it's just this this willingness of these you know brave trailblazers like the nine people in this book willing to be vulnerable. I think that is um, strengthening my faith in humanity. That we're going to start being more honest and more real, and that's that's going to help others more than anything. Is there anything else that, that I didn't ask him that you think is worth mentioning to everyone or, or a resource, anything? Well, if, if I could give like one final message to people, I would say, and I would probably be very direct and say, stop screwing around. Your mental and emotional health matter. And I am encouraging everybody to take a look at how you're doing mentally, emotionally, physically. How are your relationships and your social life? Do you have a spiritual life? Because your life matters and you're going to leave this job someday or the job's going to leave you. That's inevitable. And when that happens, what kind of shape are you in? How are you doing? If you will look at it now, deal with it now, start to be more honest, then you can begin to heal this. You deserve to retire healthfully and be happy. I feel that we are sacrificing human beings to this job and the general public has no idea. So this is going to be an inside out job. This is going to be an internal job. Brave individuals, people who are Veterans like you, Wendy, veteran first responders, being brave and stepping forward and speaking out. And I would just encourage anyone who's listening who is even 1% not okay, do something different. Reach out to someone, have a conversation, get focused on your mental and emotional health, do it today. Because this can make a huge difference for the entire rest of your life. And that's it. I'll climb down off my soapbox now. 
Oh, and that's, <laughs> that is great advice. And um, I don't think people can hear that enough. Thank you so much, Kim. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Wendy. And I am thrilled to be your first guest. And I really do appreciate you uh, wanting me to be a part of this. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Kim. Mindfulness meditation is an evidence-based tool that can help reduce anxiety, alleviate depression, improve sleep, lower blood pressure, and enhance immune and brain function. Remember, if you are struggling, don't ever be afraid to reach out for help. There are an abundance of resources available, ranging from calling a friend, a family member, reaching out to peer support, or a national hotline. You are not alone, and there is no shame in seeking help. Check the show notes for hotline numbers and resources mentioned during this episode.